Hello, and welcome to the Aaron Werner podcast on iCode Media. Today, I talk with Dr. Cheryl Chapman about a new study recently published in JAMA titled The Low Dose 0.01% Atropine Eye Drops versus Placebo for Myopia Control, a randomized clinical trial. It's very important to us that we always practice evidence-based medicine, and so Cheryl and I chat about what we learned from this study and how this may or may not affect how we currently treat children with myopia using atropine. So we would love for you to be part of the conversation, so please leave a comment, share with a friend, and leave us a five-star review. Also, be sure to support those who support us. This year, we proudly introduced the Life Meter to our practice in response to our staff's passionate demand for enhanced patient care. Their firsthand experience with the Life Meter underscored the crucial link between proper diet, carotenoid supplementation, and visual health and performance. Our front desk team now measures every patient's skin carotenoid levels, providing valuable education on each score and the significance of carotenoids in ocular performance and health. The result? Patients love the enhanced experience, and our Mackey Health sales have doubled since implementing LifeMeter. To discover more, contact your Mackey Health representative or click on the link in the show notes. All right, Cheryl, we have a uh, uh, excited for the conversation because just recently... Uh, in fact, July 13th in JAMA, um, we have a new uh, atropine study that was released, and uh, you have been my go-to person for all things atropine. Uh, it's nice knowing somebody on the, the front edge who, who understands it all and can take all the, uh, uh, you know, the topics, the discussions, and, and simplify it down uh, for those of us who may not be doing it as much. Um, but new study released, and so I wanted to dive into... Uh, your thoughts on the study, what, uh, if this means anything different on how you're looking at atropine or how we're all going to be looking at atropine um, and all that good stuff. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk about it. You know, it's not that this stuff is hard to understand. The difficult part is that new stuff comes out so frequently um, that your average practitioner just doesn't have a chance to keep up with it all um, and to read it all. And so um, I wasn't at all surprised to get your email because I've gotten over the last um, week, week and a half, I have gotten multiple emails um, and calls with people asking, hey, what do you think of this? Um, and it's really interesting because it, it really got a lot of coverage. Um, I saw posts on it on um, Facebook, you know, online Facebook forums. Um, I was getting emails even from um, folks who are not actually optometrists, who are just business people who are kind of watching some of these technologies and who are looking at, you know, investing in some of these technologies. So it's just really interesting how um, far of a reach things have gotten. You know, 10 years ago, no, nobody outside of a small group of optometrists really was paying attention to this. Um, and now it's really gotten a lot of global reach. Yeah. Which is awesome. I, I think it's something that, um, I don't want to say neglected, but neglected. We, we, I don't think it was mainstreamed as it should have been. It certainly wasn't you know, primary care and, and definitely not standard of care looking and treating myopia. So I love the fact that there's lots of discussion around it. Um, but, you know, and that's science for us, right? We, uh, we get different studies that seemingly tell us different things and we've got to weed through it all. So let's walk through the study, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, but it was published, like I said, in JAMA on July 13th of this year, 2023, uh, titled Low-Dose 0.01% uh, Atropine Eye Drops versus Placebo for Myopia Control, a Randomized Clinical Trial um, by Repka et al. And uh, so walk us through what this study's looking at, and then we'll talk about what, uh, what their findings were. Okay, cool. So um, I think it's really fun to practice evidence-based medicine. And when we really dive into these studies, there's some certain things that you always want to be kind of mindful of. You know, was the study paid for by somebody who's got some sort of proprietary interest? Um, was the study um, double masked? You know, not all studies can be, but a study like this is very easy to double mask. Um, What's really interesting is, was there a placebo? In this study, yes, there was a placebo. And I will kind of talk through some of the other atropine studies that are kind of famous uh, and talk about why maybe that's so important. Um, and uh, yeah, so with this study in particular, what they did, the study was started in 2018 and it was concluded in 2022. And what they did was they took a placebo and they took 0.01% atropine, and they compared them, and they had um, 
I think they had like 187 kids in the study or something like that, fewer than 200. And um, kids age five to 12 and kids that were, I think somewhere between a minus one and a minus six in their um, current myopia prescriptions when they started the study. And the most unusual or unique thing about this study is that it was a US-based study. And the reason that's important is because a lot of these other atropine studies were done on um, really like East Asian populations for the most part. And so the data that we're getting out of this is a little bit um, different because the population was a little bit different. Or it could be, right? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it could be. Um, And so I think that's the most compelling part. Now, the um, study ran for, like I said, from 2018 um, to 2022. The kids that were in the study were treated for, I believe, 24 months, and then they did another six-month follow-up after they concluded treatment. And the study findings were that there was not really a statistically significant difference between those kids treated with placebo and those kids treated with 0.01% low-dose atropine. And um, they were measuring spherical spherical refractive equivalent, so the prescription change, as well as axial length changes. Um, And so I think that this study can be a little misleading because um, so much of the the bylines on it, so much of the stuff that kind of like went out into the news was like, breaking news, 0.01% low-dose atropine, not effective for myopia control. Boom and mic drop, right? So then like all these people are like, oh my God, we can't treat with atropine. No, 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 no. If you read the fine line right at the end, it's like, and we think maybe we need to study higher concentrations in this population. Oh, okay, well, that's great. Now let's dial it back a little bit. Let's keep in mind that we did this study or this study was started in summer of 2018. Well, um, now let's think about some of the other studies we've had. Adam one famous study that looked at placebo versus 1% atropine. 1% super duper effective, also lots of side effects. So then they did Adam two study. And I think Adam one was done in like 2003 or something like that, long time ago. Okay, so if you look at the Adam two study, which was done I think in 2011, you have no placebo. That's, That's key, there was no placebo. They used 0.01, So those were not nearly as low dose as what many of us are treating with today. The 0.01 they used thinking it was like a placebo. That's my understanding. Um, And then they saw that what their interpretation was of the results at that time was they saw that um, there was some effect in slowing that uh, refractive equivalent, that spherical refractive equivalent with the 0.01. Well then, but there were also like almost no side effects, right? And so then they, they published that data and then everyone got super excited about Adam 2 And everyone was like, let's treat everybody with 0.01. Done, okay? So a lot of doctors were doing that, but a lot of doctors who were measuring axial length at that time, and I was one of them, because I started off with 0.01 on all these kiddos, um, I was measuring axial length and I was finding that the axial length was still changing too much. So then I was just sort of like every, every case, I just was like increasing their um, low dose atropine from 0.01 up to a slightly higher dose. At the time the pharmacy I was using, I could go to 0.02, 0.03 and so on. Um, and so I would do that until I saw it slow down. And um, then we all got really excited when the LAMP study came out because the LAMP study had a placebo. They compared a placebo to 0.01, but they also compared it to 0.025 and 0.05. So those two concentrations are less than the the higher concentrations that were in that ADAM2 study. Um, And the conclusions of the LAMP study, which were published like somewhere in later 2018, early 2019, which is, again, keep in mind, shortly after the study that we're talking about today that was just published, shortly after that study started. So um, LAMP was published right after they, they started this study. So they didn't know the LAMP results when they started this study. But the LAMP results told us that um, it is dose-dependent. 
meaning that the efficacy, the control you're getting, depends on the concentration of atropine. The 0.05 was more effective than the 0.025, which was more effective than the 0.01, which could be marginally more effective than placebo, but really not that much. And the difference is in the axial length, not so much the spherical refractive equivalent, which um, we know that our um, more modern um, optical biometers that we use to measure axial length with, we know that they are more effective at um, seeing changes early on because they're so accurate. Um, the one that I use is accurate up to 0.01 millimeters margin of error. Um, one of the other ones on the market that's really popular is accurate up to 0.03 millimeters margin of error. So that's very accurate. And we're going to see, um, we might not see a change in refractive error until that patient is changed by about maybe 0 0.2, 0 0.25 millimeters. So it's really, it's really important if you're using atropine to think about how those changes are happening with axial length before you will see them um, with the refraction. How, Cheryl, how soon do you think that, or how far after a change in axial length do you think you see a, a change in refraction? Um, so, you're, are you asking me um, how much axial length change do you need? No, just if, if you're going to see... Uh, so you're measuring a cage, you're monitoring a, a, a child for myopia management, and their their spherical equivalent refraction stays the same, but you notice uh, an elongation of the axial length. In your mind, are you thinking, hey, the next time I see them, or in, in six months, I'm going to see that change be reflect reflective in a um, in a in a in a prescription change? Um, well, that's a really good question. So if I'm monitoring a patient and I am seeing that they're axial length is kind of creeping up a little bit. Um, how soon do I think it might be reflected in their refractive yeah. error? It depends on how much they're changing, right? So sometimes you're getting, you're slowing that progression by literally 100% stoppage. Like they're not changing at all. Sometimes you've reduced progression by 80%, but they're still changing a little bit. Sometimes you've reduced progression by 50%, but they're still changing a little bit. So, so how fast they're still progressing, um, really affects how soon you might see that change in refractive error. Um, a lot of the kiddos that I have on atropine are really, really stable, and I'm not seeing those changes in refractive error. Um, if I do see it kind of creeping a little bit, sometimes I won't see that change until nine months or a year in, um, where they get like a quarter more. And so I feel like if I can make those adjustments in their atropine concentration, then I can certainly adjust treatment um, and really avoid those refractive changes almost altogether. Um, not all kids are responsive to atropine. There's a small percentage of kids who just really don't seem to have a good response to it, um, no matter what you do. And that's, that's kind of frustrating, but for the most part, it is very effective. Um, I would also say that I personally usually start with about 0.025% atropine. Um, but a lot of doctors who rely heavily on the LAMP study, they will still start with 0.05%. Now, my reasoning for starting with that lower mid, I would call it kind of a mid concentration, that 0.025, my reasoning for starting with that is because I don't have an East Asian population for the most part. I have um, a very... Uh, you know, the, the Midwest, we are, you know, very Caucasian, more Western European, um, German heritage, uh, Czechoslovakian, Irish, stuff like that. And so um, we don't know exactly. So it is really interesting for me to see this study that's come out now that's on a U.S. population. Um, but it didn't really tell me anything I didn't already know. It told me not to use 0.01%, but I'm already not using 0.01%. Um, so I usually start with 0.025, and I would say about half the time, and I'm not, I didn't do a statistical analysis on this, but about half the time that works for my patient population, and about half the time it doesn't. And so uh, about every other kid that I've got on atropine, it seems I'm, I'm bumping them up to that 0.05. But I figure if I can use 0.025 effectively on half of my kids, I'm going to. Yeah because I want the lowest amount of pharmaceutical going into their system as possible. Um, and I know also when they're older, when we stop their atropine, the lower dose I was able to maintain them on, 
the less rebound effect they're more likely to have. Um, that's what our studies so far are showing us on that. Um, and we'll know more, you know, as more studies come out. Oh, absolutely. So what are your markers for when you, you start a new kid on the uh, 0.025? When are you going to say, this isn't enough, I'm going to jump up? Is it any sort of change? Is it a, a progressive change that you see over time? What are you, what's well, your trigger? So what's my trigger? There's a couple of factors that I'm looking at. Like, what are the kids' risk factors, right? Like, what is their ethnicity? If they're, um, if they're like an East Asian kid, maybe I start them out on 0.05 from the get-go. Um, if they already have a long axial length, if they are a young age, if they already have that high refractive error. Um, so, so it varies. If I've got, um, let's say I've got a six-year-old kid who's a minus five and they are already a 25 millimeter eye. Um, let's say for some reason I started them on 0.025 instead of 0.05 uh, and I bring them back in and I see that their axial length didn't change at all. Um, great. Maybe their axial length is actually shorter because they've had a little bit of choroidal thickening. Great. Um, maybe their axial length changed by 0.05 or 0.06 in that three-month period. I'm probably okay with that with a six-year-old. Now let's say I've got that very same patient. Let's say they're 15 years old. They're a minus five. They're a 25 millimeter eye. Um, and they change by 0 0.05, 0 0.06. They, that's not okay. That 16 year old kid, that 15 year old kid shouldn't grow as much as a six year old should grow. Um, so we have to keep that in mind. We're getting more and more growth curves coming out. And, um, and I think I've shared some of those with you in the mm -hmm. past, Aaron. And I'll attach so, those here because those are super helpful. Yeah, it's helpful to be able to look at that because um, you can use that when you're making these treatment decisions to kind of look at and say, okay, well, where, where, where should this kid be in terms of rate of growth? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and maybe if that kid is only a 24 millimeter eye, I'm less aggressive than if they're a 26 millimeter eye. Um, because I know that that risk of pathology goes way, way up and the risk of vision loss goes way, way up after that eye exceeds 26 millimeters. Um, as many as one out of four people uh, who have a 26 millimeter eye will have vision loss by age 75. Uh, and vision loss in that study was defined as 2040 or worse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're the doctor. Um, be the doctor, analyze the data, try and understand the data as best you can, and um, customize it, right? Customize it for that patient based on um, how high you perceive their risk to be uh, and how much change you feel like is acceptable for that patient. Very cool. How many of your patients come in uh, referencing the studies? It's really funny because you have a, a variety of personalities that come in as parents, right? So um, when you have a patient that doesn't know anything about myopia management, which is common in some of our markets, and they come in and you're just educating them on what is myopia and why do we care? And they're sort of hesitant. They're like, well, do we really care? Can we just make their glasses stronger? That's not the parent that's coming and referencing the studies. But then you've also got this other demographic um, of parents who are, you know, like their kids, they're pushing their kids. Academic rigor is like paramount in their house. They're pushing their kids to be like super involved. Let's do resume builders. You know, you have to have a good resume by the time you're 10. You're going to study 24-7. You're going to go to the best schools. You're going to have yeah. the best education. We're going to work you, work you, work you, work you. <laughs> and those are the parents that are coming in with the studies um, and they've read the studies and they're asking about the studies and they're like, well, have you read this study? And it's kind of intimidating if you, as the doctor, haven't read the study, um, but you can always say, I haven't seen that one yet, but I have read a lot of the studies and I'd be more than happy to read that one, uh, you know, and get back to you on what my feedback is. Like, like you don't have to be intimidated by that parent as long as you have kind of a canned response of what you're going to say, because you will have these parents that come in with these studies. Uh, and it, it's interesting because sometimes it's dangerous how much they do know because they don't actually understand a lot of it. Um, and so they're, they're armed with just the wrong amount of knowledge, if that they makes sense. They know sense. just enough to be dangerous. And, and they, they absolutely do. Which is an interesting topic because when, at least when I was growing up, your doctor said something, you did it. I, I, I would have never questioned my doctor. I would have never questioned any of my school teachers and uh, would, but now I've, you know, patients have the same access to the same information you and I do. 
and they can find it just as easily, if not quicker, while they're sitting in the in the exam room chair. So I think it is important to have that, you know, I hate the term canned response, but prepared response for when you do get challenged on something you're not ready to respond back on. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You'll see the, the funniest things, like you'll see parents come in with spreadsheets of their child's visual acuity, both AM and PM. Uh, and it's like, oh my gosh, right? Like, That's like sad. who does that? And they're like, um, every time we take an axial length measurement, they're recording it on their, you know, little, they've got their notes app open on their phone and they're making their own personal, like journal of everything that's happening. Uh, and they get totally wigged out if that kid's axial length over, you know, three months went up 0.02 and you're like, wait, no, this is good. Like. Yeah. He's, it's a normal growth rate. <laughs> like, uh, you know, so I think it's really important. That's a good, um, that kind of stirs a thought in my mind to make a good point that you need to prepare these patients that we're not stopping eye growth. We're slowing eye growth. That's our goal. And we're going to do our best for your child. And, um, you know, you, you have to make sure that there are um, correct expectations or else the parent um, becomes very disappointed and upset. And they, these parents, they get high anxiety sometimes, and then they spread that anxiety to their child. Um, and then the children get very upset because they feel like a failure and they feel like they're disappointing their parents and they feel like, oh my God, I'm gonna go blind. And it's like, no, you're not gonna go blind. Like, that's why we're doing this to slow your eye growth so your eyes can stay healthier. But you know, these kids, they feel like, well, this is it. I'm, I'm nearsighted, my eye is long, I'm done. Like. What, you know, I've had patients come to me, um, like I've had some adult patients come who are just so concerned that they have literally um, planned career changes because they have convinced themselves that within a certain number of years, they're going to have retinal detachments and they're not going to be able to have a job that requires them to see. And so they're, they're, they're doing like vocational training to make sure that they can still be a part of the workforce after they lose vision. Cause they're so convinced that it is oh. predetermined and destined that they are going to lose vision. Um, you know, and so we have to kind of like talk them off the edge a little bit sometimes and say, well, no, no, no. Like, okay. First of all, you have two eyes. Thank goodness you have two eyes, but then like, let's just, maybe do more frequent eye exams so that if you do develop glaucoma, we can treat it. So that if you get a retinal tear, it doesn't turn into a retinal detachment. Like, no, like you're at higher risk. Sure. But like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's, yeah, you're, you're, let's sit back, calm down and just do what we need to do to take the best care of your eyes that we can. The, um, it's funny how often I think we inappropriately scare people and we don't have to just with the, the, the verbiage we know and the, the understanding we know, because we know this much and we're giving them that much, but we give them the, the worst parts and the worst case scenarios of, uh, of what it is. And I don't know if we do that because we're just trying to condense what we have or if we're trying to scare them into, into believing and trusting us and, and following the treatments. Um, but I've seen that too on, uh, on all of it, whether it's glaucoma or myopia or whatnot. I think about glaucoma. When you talk about this, I think about glaucoma. And I think about patients that I've had that have just not returned to clinic, you know, because they had a high eye pressure and I, you know, and I told them they needed treatment and I know they've been non-compliant with other providers and they didn't like what I had to say and they left and they never came back to me and they went to, I don't know where they are, right? Like, I don't know what happened to those people, but they wanted to try and find a doctor who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Um, and I think, well, what could have I had? What could I have said differently to that patient to make them understand that it's a problem that needs to be treated, but also not, you know, scare them to death? Like it's a hard balance, and every personality is different. And so, like learning communication skills that really resonate with different personalities is very important. Yeah. So you do a lot of uh, obviously you're very successful in your clinic, but I know you work with a lot of other docs and, and study groups and whatnot too. Do you have anything that you help teach other doc with or other advice on how to communicate better, how to communicate effectively so that you get your point across without either undervaluing or, or over, you know, over scaring them? <laughs> over scaring is that a real <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I don't, I don't do anything specific to help train doctors on this. Um, but I talk to my externs that rotate through my clinic quite a bit about, 
patient communication, and I talk to my staff a lot about it. And I think um, what you really need to do um, if you want to get better at communicating with your patients is two things. Thing one is you need to think about the patient interactions you've had with your doctors at when you are the patient. Um, and you need to kind of think about how different doctors resonated with you, how you felt whenever you were given bad news or news that wasn't um, exactly what you were expecting. And you need to think about what mindset you were in when that doctor was talking to you. Um, and, I, and I think empathy goes a long way here, right? So when you can kind of put yourself in that patient's shoes and think, well, how would I be feeling if I was getting bad news? Um, and how would I want to be communicated with? So I think, I think that's thing one. Um, and, you know, it's not like we're all going and getting bad eye news, but most of us have either ourselves or had a family member go and maybe get bad medical news at, at one point in time. Um, so that's thing one. And thing two, I think, is practicing. Practicing when you're not in front of a patient. Practice into the mirror. Practice with family members. Practice with your children, with your spouse, because the more times you say something, the better you get at it. And you can, if you're practicing with non-eye care providers, you can get their feedback on how you're coming across, especially if they're people that you know really well, like family members. Yeah. Um, so I had uh, one of my externs, and I used to carpool. Uh, so her and I would drive in the car, and every time we were in the car together, I would say, okay, today we're going to talk about my bomian gland dysfunction or whatever, fill in the blank. And she would practice her spiel. And then I would give her feedback. And then she would do it again. And I would give her feedback. And then she would do it again. And it, she got really good at patient communication. Like, it was, it was fantastic. And you just, okay, today's macular degeneration. Okay, today's glaucoma. Okay, today's myopia management. Um, but yeah, it, it, and then so one day we had to give my daughter a ride. And my daughter got in the car and she just started talking to her about Demodex. And my daughter was like, oh my God, I have this. Oh, Martha, she's just practicing. But it was really like she freaked out. Awesome. And it, was, it was actually the first time that she had ever done her Demodex talk. Uh, and uh, I was like, yeah, okay, so we're going to tone this back and tone that back. Because did you see how freaked out my daughter got when you started telling her about this? Uh, but yeah, it just practice, 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 because every time you do it, you get better. It comes off your tongue more naturally and you feel more comfortable talking about it. Um, so yeah, those would be my biggest points of advice. Uh, I love it. I'm so happy you said that. I realized that our office uh, had nothing to do with myopia, but we were talking about, we actually brought in Life Meter. And so we were having the, the staff talk about Life Meter and measuring skin carotenoids and whatnot. And they were super hesitant. And it finally dawned on me that I never walked them through. I walked them, I told them what to say, but I never had them practice. And I would never let my kid go play t-ball without picking up a bat, swinging and practicing, hitting it off a tee, shoot professional baseball players. You know, we go early to the games to, to for batting practice. They get paid millions of dollars a year to do this, maybe a million dollars a game, and they're practicing beforehand. And so I was teeing my team up for success, or not teeing them up for success by not forcing them to practice as much as they probably don't like it. Um, but uh, so I love hearing that you said that. Yeah, it's awkward to practice, right? Like Initially, yeah, it's super awkward. It's so awkward. Like if you're just sitting there in a staff meeting and you're one technician talking to another technician and you want to explain something as though you're talking to a patient, it's goofy feeling because you yeah. know that they know already. But you just kind of have to get over that and just practice. Yep. yep. The other thing that I did is whenever I see my family members, um, I'll just put my phone in the corner on record so I can go back and listen to what I said during the exam. And I do family because I, I can't do that with patients. They obviously my family gives me permission, but listening to that on the on the car ride home is cringing. On uh, just some of the dumb things that come out of my mouth during an exam, and it's helped me refine just you know just junk talking and trying that's to put kind in fillers. Of, that's kind of genius. That's really cool. That's a good idea. It was it was good. I I realized I repeated the same thing about ten times in a row. <laughs> and even after they said yes, okay, you know, I understand. I'd say it again. Um, I was probably charting while I was saying it, so I wasn't even thinking about what I was saying. I should video record some of these, but it was it was very eye-opening about how how much uh, 
I said that didn't need to be said. And if mm -hmm. I cut all that out, that's a couple of minutes easily off of the exam or time I can better spend with patient. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool um, that you do that. I think I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we talk to patients. We have a lot of practice talking to patients. All of us can be better. Um, and then, you know, some days you're better than other days. If you're tired or if you're distracted oh, yeah. by something going on in your personal life or if you're distracted about the patient you saw just before them, you know. Um, but I think it's really important uh, when you are with a patient to talk to them in the same way that you would want to be talked to um, and always give them a chance to ask questions. Uh, whenever I finish, I always ask patients, you know, and do you have any questions? And it's so funny because patients' immediate response is no. But I was wondering, yeah. <laughs> and then I go on to, add, to ask a question. Um, but, it, you know, you, you get these patients, you think you've explained everything so well, and they go up to the front, and pretty soon the staff is asking you, hey, the patient wants to know this, that, or the other. And it's like, oh, we already talked about that. I, I guess I didn't explain it as well as I thought I explained it. Um, I, think a, I think an important thing, too, to remember is sometimes you'll hear – um, doctors talk about, well, let's, let's write a script for it. Let's practice our script. And I don't like the word script because that makes it sound like you have to memorize a certain string of words. And the reality is that we all have different personalities and we all communicate slightly differently. And as long as what we're saying is correct, then you can say it however comes out most naturally um, and, and most um, authentically from you. And so I think it's okay to let everybody have sort of their own verbiage on stuff as long as what they're saying is accurate. A hundred percent. I don't like rogue or, or scripted scripts. Um, I like talking points, but I don't like scripted scripts. What I have found as well is that I, it, this is old hat for us. We talk to patients. We know what we're talking about. A lot of times it takes time for them to process. And so we're all EHR. I document on an iPad. So I found that I, I, verbally communicate the entire exam treatment strategy to them and then I'll say hey I'm gonna give you a minute to to process that I'm gonna be quiet while I make my notes so there's paused a planned pause in there to let them process then at the end I'll come back and and ask the questions because if I tell them something and say hey what do you have a question back they can't process so I've tried to find that that natural pause time I like that I think that's really wise advice because Patients do need time to process. I have found that sometimes um, when I have externs rotating through the clinic and I hear them communicate with patients, they, they talk really, really fast. They communicate really, really fast. And I'm like, no, slow down. Like, say it. Pause. It's not an awkward silence to that patient because the patient's thinking, right? Like, and so it is okay to have a lot of natural pauses, um, but I like how you said that you literally tell the patient that you're going to let them think about that for a minute while you're charting. And then uh, yeah. if they can give any questions, then you come back and like, you know, have a few minutes to do that. So that's really cool advice. Yeah. I, I thank you. I, I, I found that I was just getting overwhelmed in the exam. So I really did it for me. And, uh, but it, it worked out well for them. Uh, another thing I just thought of, and I've always done it with kids because it's fun is I'll force them to ask me a question before they can leave. <laughs> the room until you ask me one question. I just because I wanted to end on a positive note. I'm assuming the whole exam was positive, but definitely want to end on a, on a, a fun note. But I think I might start trying that with adults, just to force something. You know, it could be a silly question, but uh, but just to, to to give them that safe opportunity to ask a question, because I'm the one forcing them to do it. I like it. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah, I might do that too, but only on the days I'm not running behind. Yes. Well, we're never <laughs> running behind. Never. <laughs> oh, oh, that's uh, that's fun. So I'm, I love externs. Um, well, love hate because most of the time they're fantastic. Every once in a while, it's a uh, it pulls me back really to basics. But when you have a, a a new extern and you've got them, you know, working with the patient because we're both in for-profit practices, so we need to make sure that the patients have a good experience. Right. Um, very unlike what the the externs experience at school, where it's you know, they can do whatever they want with, with patients and take however long they want. How do you tee them up to, to go in and talk about myopia management? 
Oh, that's a great question. So um, when I have an extern, I only have one extern at a time, and we really work very, very closely. My externs don't run their own schedule. Like, you know, some clinics, they'll have their own schedule of patients, and a lot of times those end up being maybe routine patients while the senior doc gets to see all the fun stuff. My externs get to see everything that I see. Um, we work side by side. And when I have them in clinic, the first thing that they do is they learn how to do all the pre-testing so that they understand all the equipment because we have a lot of equipment here. And maybe they're familiar with most of it. Some of it maybe they're not. Um, so that's thing one. They spend a couple days um, just kind of shadowing the techs and um, actually doing pre-testing on patients. And then we jump pretty quickly into them shadowing me. So they're watching me do exams and they're listening to how I do patient education and they're listening to how I talk about these things and, and kind of the exam flow that we have. Um, and then like we kind of do this sort of transition where um, they're starting to do part of the exam and I'm shadowing them. Um, and we have a lot of um, really nice things at my clinic that help us to do this together. Like we've got um, anterior segment cameras that run on a big screen so I can see everything they're seeing under the slit lamp and vice versa. Um, and so then once, we, you know, I've been shadowing them at this point, then once we leave the room, then we'll kind of talk about like, how did this go? How did that go? Like, you know, you did really great on this. Maybe you could have done this differently. Um, and, and so I'm hearing They've heard me already do my patient education. Then I'm hearing them kind of start to do that on their own, and I give them a lot of feedback. Um, and then once I'm comfortable with that extern that they're like really doing a good job with this stuff, then I let them go in with patients on their own, and they get to do that patient education themselves, and they get to you know interpret the test results with the patients and things like that. Um, and then. Then they'll come back to the office, and meanwhile, I've been watching everything. You know, I've already I've looked at the OptiMaps, I've looked at the Lipa scans, I've looked at the topographies, I like like everything I've seen, um, and I I also can access the EHR and I can see like what they've put in there um, for you know okay they've got Demodex, okay they got cataract right, um, and then we'll um, they'll come back they'll they'll talk to me and then I'll go in and I'll talk to the patient for a few minutes and and kind of you know, look under the slit lamps. They think I'm doing something too. But I've already like actually even watched the slit lamp video from my desk because that uploads to my computer as well. So I know what their slit lamp looks like. Um, but that way the patient like really understands that I am paying quite close attention to their care. And my patients love it. Like my patients compliment my externs all the time. It's like over and over like she's really good are you gonna how can we convince her to stay here and, and practice with you like so my patients they, they trust my externs they know I work very closely with them they know that I'm still um, paying close attention um, and we have you know signage up in the exam rooms this is a teaching facility um, so that they know um, and my patients have kind of been trained like they a lot of times expect that if I have a day where I don't have an extern with me They're like, oh, where's your extern today? <laughs> um, you know, so that's that's pretty nice. We've got a really great culture with that um, But yeah, it's a lot of in teaching these um, Externs how to talk about myopia management. It's a lot of first they get to see me do it and then they get to do it um, practice 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 yeah. Or very similar we have one at a time and I've got we run about 1.8 full-time equivalent docs. I've got a total of four docs that, that rotate through that. Um, all very different. Um, but I like that you said you start them in pretest. Um, I do as well, not just so that they learn the equipment, but I think it's important they learn the value of what the technicians do because they're going to have to be working with them. And if you don't understand what they do and what that role is like, it's really hard to, to work with them and to, to, to understand their shoes. Um, yeah, we make them uh, follow all the doctors and they're all very different. They learn all sorts of different personalities, and I make them, you know, give us little presentations on how each of them do well and what they think is is maybe unique or something they, they don't like about it. And um, but uh, but I, I like hearing how they present things. I steal from it, uh, but I make them as well question. You know, hey, what did you think about this, or what could I have done better? So I try to turn them into into my coach, uh, really for selfish reasons, just because I'm trying to always do better. Uh, yeah, I truly believe that having externs has made me a better doctor. I think it's made me a better communicator because, yeah, every time you watch somebody else do something well, you can kind of figure out how you can do that as well. Yeah. Well, and I think that uh, it's to your point as well for, for the patients, it's great for them. They relate to them on a different level than they relate to, to me because I'm, I'm the doctor. They're that in-between 
not quite yet. So I think that they, once I leave the room, they ask them if you know I'm really know what I'm talking about or if that's really what uh, what they should be doing. That's kind of that you know that, that friendly check in. Yeah, you know, and sometimes too the patients are. Um, it's almost like them getting two opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're getting, they're getting extra bang for their buck. They've had two different doctors now tell them one is a doctor in training, but they've had two different doctors tell them uh, a similar thing. So yeah, that's super valuable. Do you ever bring in your, your staff into the exam room so they can see how you're speaking to patients? Yeah. Uh, often we have, um, staff kind of rotate through in scribe positions and things like that, especially when, um, we have enough staff to allow that. Um, so, you know, they've heard it a lot. And a lot of times I will, so we wear little radio communication headsets and a lot of times I'll bring the staff back when I'm wrapping up. Um, but a lot of times there's still a little bit of patient communication going on because the patient will have another question or the staff got there faster than I thought they would get there. And so they get to hear like bits of that very, very frequently. Oh, that's cool. Like the CIA or the secret yeah. service little uh, headsets. Nice. Yeah, it's really convenient. Do you use those? I don't. Um, we, we had a, uh, just a light system that went out, and so we're trying to find a, a new system. Using the little headsets is really great. I think it could be more challenging in a, in a larger office with so many providers, but it's fantastic because if I'm back in the exam room, um, I can very discreetly call for an optician or a technician or whatever. If I decide, oh my gosh, I really want to get, um, we didn't do OCTs, let's do OCTs. I can call for a technician, they'll come back and do OCT. Um, or let's say um, they scheduled an emergency and they know that I don't know that because I'm in the exam room. They can get on the headset and they can say, hey, we scheduled a 1.30 emergency. And then I'm like, well, I better quit talking to this patient about, you know, <laughs> like we better, we better wrap this up. Cause maybe I thought I had an extra 10 minutes to just kind of, you know, uh-huh. talk about social, like socialize with this patient. Um, so that's kind of handy. Um, just to be able to have those sort of secret communications or like, let's say you're in the room and you get a vasovagal, right. And you want help and you want help stat. Um, so like my patient or my staff knows like we have certain like key phrases. So if I'm like, I need bottled water right away in room four, they know pretty much that means we've got a vasovagal and I'm going to want help getting this patient to the floor, making sure that they don't hit their head or whatever. Um, and to, to the patient, it makes sense because they're feeling thirsty. Like yeah. a lot of times when they get that vasovagal, they get really thirsty all of a sudden. Um, so I don't have to be like, we've got a code red, you know, or anything that sounds really scary. Um, but um, can, we get a, can we get a water right away in room four? And then the staff is like, oof, they know get there fast. They know drop what they're doing and somebody needs to get there fast. Oh, I like so. that. That's smart. I'll have to uh, talk with you about what system you're using. Yeah, I will do that. I'll, I'll, uh, I can send you a link to the radios we buy. Yeah, no, please do. Do you have any of your staff do the uh, education for myopia? Oh yeah, for sure. So um, we attend a big conference every year that I help um, kind of plan and I bring staff every year I am bringing two staff this year. I've brought multiple staff in the past. Um, and it's really great because there are some staff certification courses and staff tracks. Um, and boy, oh boy, when staff feel comfortable with that, myopia is something that takes a lot of patient education time. And if you can hand that off to staff, that will save you so much time. It will convert more patients. You'll, you'll end up caring for those patients better. You'll have better success. And that's really nice for a practice because myopia can be um, financially very helpful to a practice if you need to be creating some revenue that's sort of outside of these managed care plans. Um, So yeah, staff education is very, very key. Um, Any sort of online online education you can do for them, um, in-person conferences, it's all very good. Well, brag a little bit because I know you you spend a lot of time planning the... uh working on the conference. So what conference is it? How long is it? Um, so it's Vision by Design and it's put on by the um, American Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control, which I'm currently the president for that organization. Uh, and I help lead the education committee. So we are having our conference this year in Chicago. Um, it's September 6th through 9th. The first two days we have a boot camp for beginners, which is awesome for anybody who's 
interested in myopia management, but maybe feeling a little bit intimidated. It gives you everything you need to know, um, including orthokeratology, but not exclusive to orthokeratology. And then um, we spend Thursday, Friday, Saturday doing a general session and a scientific session. Um, and so that dives deeper to, for, for doctors who feel more comfortable and they want to kind of reach that next level of myopia management. Um, a lot of boot campers do end up staying for the general session. Um, but sometimes you're, you're just so fried after those two days of boot camp where your brain is like literally exploding with so much information. Um, sometimes it's, it's good to just start with boot camp and kind of go from there. Very cool. Well, that's a, uh, an awesome conference. Um, and I think that the last time I looked at, stud, at stats, it, it looked only about, you know, 10, 11% of optometrists, at least in the U S are actively engaged in myopia management. So it's a lot of opportunity, a lot of, uh, to your point, it's a, you know, it's another revenue stream that's uh, currently outside of, of managed vision care and insurance. Um, but there's a need for it, which is more important. There is a need for it. Um, it's beneficial for everybody for us to be doing myopia management. We get compensated well. Our patients have definitely increased quality of life, increased eye health by going through myopia management. Um, and it's just so prevalent now. Um, you know, we talked about staff training. At Vision by Design, we have um, the boot camp. Um, techs are pre-testers, para-optometrics, whatever you want to call them. They attend that boot camp, um, and we have recently launched an online boot camp that cool. technicians can do. Um, they can do that virtually on demand, and they can get certified. My technician, Crystal, uh, my paraoptometric Crystal, she is a certified myopia navigator, CMN, and that's the AAOMC's um, certification for paraoptometrics to prove competence in this area. Nice. I love that name, certified myopia navigator. Yes. Oh, I love that. So she's, she's, she's helping navigate the ship. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fantastic. I, I, I Thank love you. It. And I think it's important too for our staff, uh, you made the kind of comment earlier when you have enough of them, because um, staffing I think is always going to be a challenge and uh, one way or another, but having professional development opportunities for them is crucial. Otherwise it's a job. You know, it makes it more than a job. When you can help your staff grow and learn these things, they feel empowered. They feel so much job satisfaction. They feel loyalty to you as their doctor because you are helping them attain this. Um, so yeah, you wanna get good staff, you wanna keep good staff, you wanna have good culture in your office, give them these opportunities. If not with other subspecialties, um, you know, with myopia management, it's a great one. Um, staff get very excited about it, and um, they feel like they've really accomplished a lot uh, when they do this, especially, I think, since it's such a new field, because they feel, I think, really special being on the front end of something that's new and exciting in eye care. Um, I know my staff feels very empowered by it. Oh, absolutely. And it's exciting for them right? when they get to be part of the, the healthcare team other than a, a, you know, a button pusher on an autorefractor. And for sure. It's, it's a very different experience for them, and it's better for the patient. I think there's higher compliance. I've seen it with, uh, with our team and what they've done. Yeah, it does improve compliance. That's for sure. That's awesome. So to find out about that, where would somebody go to look at the uh, CMN? So the CMN, this is a hard question because we are <laughs> launching a new website at the end okay. of this month. I believe the web address will be the same. The the AAOMC's website is, <laughs> Give me a We second. didn't plan this ahead of time. I'm putting you on the spot. I apologize. <laughs> I know. Um, I think. Uh, let me it, see. Uh, AAOMC.org. Is it org? Okay. So American Academy of Orthokeratology yeah. and Myopia Control can be found at AAOMC.org. I always second guess if it's org or com. There's too many. It's, uh, no, that's funny. And we didn't prepare that, like I said, so it uh, kind of okay. went down a fun little rabbit hole. So, <laughs> no. so aomc.org, and, uh, and it'll yeah. be relaunched at the end of the month, which uh, hopefully will be uh, probably when we're, we're, you know, soon once we launch this, uh, this episode. Uh, that's exciting. And how long is the, uh, the certification process online? 
Um, it's kind of a learn at your own pace. It is um, on demand. So we've made it very affordable for practices. I believe the committee that was working on it, I believe that um, there's a cutoff between one to five staff. And then if you have greater than six staff, there's a little bit of a jump in price. Um, but it's very affordable for practices to you know, offer this to their staff, multiple staff, um, doing it on demand. I think there's five modules, five or six modules, um, with little quizzes within each module. Um, so it just kind of depends on how quickly you can kind of go through it. Um, there are recorded lectures for them to watch. And um, I would say that somebody could get through it you know, in a month or two if they were really diligent. All right. Quick technical difficulties, but we are back. So we were wrapping up talking about um, the, the myopia certification for staff, the CMN. And uh, we had figured out that the website is the aaomc.org. Yes. Um, and so, uh, um, and you were just walking us through that there were different uh, different booking levels and, and blocking levels. Um, and I'm sure when we log in, we'll be able to see what, uh, you know, what the cost is. I, I think almost any cost in educating staff is, is well worth it. I think it's it. like, I think it's like 199 up to five staff and like 299 for greater well, than five. That's, and that's, you get and you have access for a year. That's fantastic. So, yeah. Yeah, it's very affordable, intentionally very affordable. Uh, very much so. Um, yeah, that's a no-brainer. If you've yeah. got someone that uh, you know, once they learn the basics in the office, know the EHR, and is on on that side, if this is a focus, I think that's a uh, an absolute no-brainer. And I don't know what you do, but in in our office, we make uh, education. Well, now we make uh, earning credentials uh, mandatory as part of their welcome letter. So if they don't hit what we've outlined by the end of the first year, um, we've got a reason to, to say this isn't working out. Um, and we don't do it because we want to get rid of people. We do it because right. we want them to, to develop and grow. Um, but, yeah, we uh, do but, pay raises when people get more letters yeah. behind their names. Yeah, absolutely. We do, I was going to say, we do the same thing. We incentivize it. Um, you know, I pay for all the study materials. I pay for the tests. I don't reimburse. I pay for it because I think it's important that, that we put our money where our mouth is. And, yeah. um, uh, but I, you know, they need to study on their own time. They need to study at hours. They've got to put in the work. They're more than, more than welcome to bring their questions to us, but I'm not going to teach you. I'm going to help, you know, answer questions. But, right. uh, uh, but yeah, I think that, that the more they, you know, they immediately get a raise once they, they get the, the letters after their name. And then once they've showed that they can use those to bring a higher return for themselves to the office, they get another raise. That's pretty good. That's a sweet deal. Uh, it's very motivating for people to do that. But, you know, money isn't always the biggest motivator. Like you nope. said earlier, sense of purpose um, and a feeling of accomplishment is a really big motivator for a lot of people, too. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Daniel Pink agrees with it, too. His uh, little caricature video, you can YouTube it, but he talks about from the book Drive what motivates people. I just like having the money front, talk with them up front so they know that that's not part of the issue. Let's get that yeah. off the table and talk about the good stuff. Cool. I love it. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you were able to jump back on for the last uh, three minutes here. <laughs> so we can uh, finish up and, and wrap it up. Cheryl, always a pleasure uh, chatting with you. And I dig that neon kids sign behind you. That's super cool. Thank you. Yeah, we've got neon all over the office. We got the suns and, and all Ooh, sorts I like of it. Uh, we are in the middle of construction as well. You can see the tile wall is going up and uh -huh. we need to move those two signs. Um, but yeah, we always get a lot of compliments on our neon. When we started um, renovating the office, a lot of my patients were very concerned we were going to get rid of the neon. They they were begging me, don't get rid of the neon. I will not get rid of the neon. That's cool. Um, very, very yeah, so cool. Chris Wolf's dad, Steve, who you know, mm -hmm. yep, started well. this office. And his wife, oh, Maria, okay. picked out the neon. And uh, she's really delighted to see that we've kept the neon all these years. That's cool. Yeah. That's, that makes it even better. I like it even more. Yeah. So awesome. Well, Cheryl, thanks for making time. I know it's uh, end of your day and you got kids to go home to. And, you know, we've talked enough nerd talk today. So it was fun and a pleasure as always. Uh, I hope to talk to you again soon, Aaron. Definitely. Awesome. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.